Are you ready? Ready to release internal pain? To find confidence, clarity, and direction for your future? To live a life of meaning, fulfillment, and contribution? To trust your intuition again, but something's been holding you back? You've come to the right place. Welcome. I'm Ian Hawkins, the host and founder of the Grief Code podcast. Together, let's heal your unresolved or unknown grief by unlocking your grief code. As you tune in to each episode, you will receive insight into your own grief, how to eliminate it and what to do next. Before we start, I have one request. If any new insights or awareness land with you during this episode, please send me an email at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com and let me know what you found. I know the power of this work and I love to hear the impact these conversations have. Okay, let's get into it. Today's guest, Suzanne Anderson, has written two books. The first one already published, The Way of the Mysterious Woman, and second book out in June, You Make Your Path by Walking. And both of these books deal with overcoming things from your past and how to do so. So we talk about her own journey around how she's been able to come through different experiences herself. She touches on a time in Bali, and for those who have been long-time listeners, you've heard me refer to my own experiences in Bali. So she was given a calling in Bali, so she talks about then suddenly having this inner voice telling her that what, what needs to happen. But then, of course, then starts the journey of being able to make that a reality. And then there's also the big moment of having losing her uh, husband to suicide and the impact that had and how she got through that, how she came out the other side and everything she learned along the journey. There's also some pretty cool uh, guidance that came through for both of us through this chat. So if you like things are a little bit mysterious, then you'll love this chat with Suzanne Anderson. Hey, everyone, and welcome to this week's guest, Suzanne Anderson. Suzanne, how are you? I'm great, thank you. Good to talk to you here today. Great to have you on. You've got a couple of books. You've got one coming out very soon, um, but we've just talked about the, your journey and chronologically it probably makes more sense that we start on the first one. But the book was a product, product of an experience that you had and, and I mentioned before we came on that my listeners would be familiar with some of the stories I've shared from my experience in Bali, but you had quite a profound experience in Bali too. Mm-hmm. So firstly, how do you end up in Bali? And then could you share right. that story about? Him? Well, there's sort of, there's sort of these two life transforming moments, like where literally there was, you know, a kind of what I call a wake up call. One, I would say, I, I would call the light wake up call. That's what happened in Bali. And I'll share that. And then, that put me on a path that ended up in the in the first book, which makes sense in a moment. And then the the second uh, wake up call, which was more of the dark wake up call. Um, wake up as in really wake up to who I am and to who I am in the world and to the world itself. So the first um, experience was maybe yeah a couple of decades ago now. And my sister lived in Indonesia at the time. She lived in Java, in um, uh, Jakarta. No, Jogjakarta, actually, Jogjakarta. 
And I went over there to visit her and we had a, we were fasting and doing yoga and kind of doing this wonderful week in Bali, just the two of us. She left her kids and husband in Java. And toward the end of that time, and I was meditating and I, I kind of fell into, I guess we could say, or maybe dissolved into an experience of just loving presence. And I'd had a very long time spiritual practice. Um, I'd had my first sort of spiritual experience, maybe um, could call it that, uh, 17 or 18. So I'd been on the spiritual path for some time, but this was really different because I'd been more in masculine spiritual paths with more guru-centric um, pathway. This was really like a deep feminine surrender. It was just this pure light, pure bliss, absolute loving presence. And I stayed there for a couple of days. I mean, it was like I was in a state of um, of bliss, really. And that is exactly what it was, if we could call it that. So not in quite the right words. But my... And then sometime during that that timeless time, um, a question came into my awareness, which was, will you help to midwife the divine feminine on earth? To which everything in my body responded, yes. I had no yeah. mind online at that time, you know, to say I will or I won't. Um, but then when I came out of this state, and started to put myself back together, remember who I was and where I lived and everything, uh, I, I realized that what I'd said yes to, and and I had no idea what that meant and what it meant, but I, but I knew that it was the thing I was going to do next. At the time I lived in Paris, I was a management consultant um, in a very um, prestigious, actually, job. I worked with the top teams of Fortune 100 companies and a this elite little management consulting world as very masculine. Um, there weren't very many women in that world at the time. And as I mentioned, I was on, on the sort of more masculine spiritual path. So um, yeah, that was the, within three months I'd left the firm that I was part of. I started a private coaching practice in Paris with women trying to figure out what I just said yes to basically. Yeah. <laughs> and that took me on a path. Um, I've been on ever since, actually, I would say that. I, I, it has been the, my unfolding life has been along that trajectory of what does it mean to help play a part right now in waking up uh, the deep feminine in men and women. Although my own, it took me ultimately to do programs and research for 10 years in a, in a university program so that I could really figure out what is this pathway specifically for women but mm. yeah, there, there we have it yeah wow i imagine that when you first get given that guidance and you're in a completely different space you've got a job and it's a very different world like you said very masculine very driven i imagine was there part of you that was grappling with the concept of well what what does that path look like like i've been given this calling but like how Oh, 100%. I, I had no idea what it meant. I really had no idea other than um, it was. And, and so I began where I was, which I think we have to do, right? When you, we get these calls, like, where was I? I was in this consulting world. There were a few women at these executive levels, and I was aware that they were already up against a wall. You know, they'd 
They'd learned to be successful in the masculine model, um, left big parts of themselves behind, and they were suffering. And so I thought, all right, well, I'll do this. I'll just open a practice for women. And I don't know what I'm doing. I literally feel like I was like one coaching session ahead of my clients yeah. at, at best and yep. trying to figure it out. And then my then husband, my first husband, had an opportunity to come to the United States and um, to launch a software company here in the United States in Seattle. And I realized I'm way out over my skis here to use the ski metaphor. I am yeah. Canadian, so I can use that metaphor. Yeah. And, uh, and I decided, okay, since I couldn't work, I'd go back to graduate school and in clinical psychology and really see if I can understand what is this next level that I am trying to understand, develop, what would it be for women to develop into the next level? And I was always from the beginning, you know, really, I think I, I am a sort of bridge person. I was, I, I am interested in how, you know, a, a deep presence or let's say soulful, sourceful presence translates in how we live in the world, how we show up in our relationships, how we show up in business, how we show up in as agents of change in the world. So I, which is part of why I put my, my programs in universities from the beginning so it wouldn't get sort of shoved over in the eddy somewhere. Yeah. yeah. How, how were such programs received uh, in universities at that time? Well, we were probably the things I were, we were some of the first um, to do women's leadership programs now. I mean, really everywhere you can see those. Yeah. Um, but at the time, it, the first program was, that was a challenge, just getting, finding the people because we were just starting this. Yeah. But after that, there were, there was a waiting list way out ahead, like way out ahead because because universities, because it was accredited, then people from Microsoft and Starbucks and a bunch of companies here, you know, that are, um, could, was legitimate in a certain sense. And they were seeing the results. So women were coming back from these programs and leading in really different ways. They didn't have to know what we were doing um, because it wasn't a traditional leadership program in terms of just skills. We were actually working deeply with some of the unconscious beliefs that kept women stuck in these old ways of being. Mm, love that. So for, for a, uh, well, not necessarily even young woman, but a, but a woman who's sort of making their way through in business, what's the best tip you can give them for helping them be more conscious and, and to be able to step more into that feminine space, but still feel that they're leading in a world which is generally, uh, the opposite is praised as the as the right path. Yeah. Well, I guess the first piece there is to even recognize that they are part. What I would say they're they're that they're interested and probably listening to your podcast. They're uh, what we could call women on the edge of evolution. Um, to recognize you're not alone, because what's actually I've done a lot of when the first book came out, I did a lot of keynote speaking all over. Uh, in Europe and um, here in North America. And one of the things that happened for women was the sense of I am not alone because it's actually quite confusing time. You know, there's this feeling of 
pressure. I want to be successful. I've seen a masculine model of leadership. It looks like I should do that, but that I have to leave these parts of myself behind. And I don't want to do that. Or maybe they've already gotten successful, you know, really mainlining that masculine way of being, but are feeling um, dissatisfied and, you know, unhappy and wondering what's wrong with me. And but, so first of all, just to say, to normalize that this we're trying to grow ourselves into the next level of our potentiality is how I hold it. And it's going to be uncomfortable. So first thing I'd say is, you know, welcome discomfort. It's okay that you might be uncomfortable right now. And then, um, and then see what, what you can, well, of course I'm going to recommend people get my first book because I'm going to lay it out. A lot of practices are in that book about places to start. Um, connecting to ourselves, really coming back into the body again. Yeah, and and just for the the title for those, and we'll make sure we get the the link in the notes too. The way of the mysterious woman, upgrading how you live, love, and lead, which actually gives me goosebumps. Like hearing that, like what is what are they going to find in that book that's going to be mm. so impactful for them, Suzanne? Yeah. Well. First, I should say what the word mysterial is, because I boldly uh, uh, invented it. (laughs) (laughs) it. Although some people hear it and they think, I think I know what that word means. But but because after 10 years of this research, when we would we would had written take the book is full of case studies of of uh, women going through these changes, which I think will be very helpful for people. But we had no we were trying to find a way to describe it as this like, are these full presence women leaders are they is it integral leaders is it you know what's what can we call these leaders but what we were seeing was women who had a capacity to exceptional capacity actually to be with the unknown with the mystery with ambiguity with uncertainty and of course in these times that's pretty critical Um, but they also had this what uh, Carl Jung's um, collaborator Tony Wolf called um, a medial capacity, which is this capacity to bridge between differences between the conscious and the unconscious to sort of find the middle way. And one day this word kind of popped up. These women are mysterious. So I wanted to say that, first of all, that's what that is. Yeah. Um, kind of pointing the way to a way of being that we haven't seen before. So, so the book kind of lays out the first section is the research and the models so that, and there's certainly for, for men and for women, actually, um, a lot of men have found the book useful, although the research I did was with women. Yeah. Um, and then part two is going through this developmental pathway, which goes through five different feminine and masculine archetypes. And in each one of those chapters, um, there are very specific practices. We kind of lay out how does the shadow show up? And by shadow, I mean the parts of ourselves that we've tucked into the unconscious. And yep. um, you probably work with that in your podcasts. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You've mentioned a couple of times around being that bridge and Bali's one of those bridges, right? It, it connects us to the part of us that perhaps we've always known was there but didn't really know how to explain it or articulate it. 
but then you go away and like you described, like you're suddenly helping women, you're only a few steps ahead, which is when you're guiding someone, that's all you need to be. Is part of what you do or have done and continue to do is to help the feminine cross that bridge between it's almost like two worlds, right? Like what they know yeah. in terms of the, the world they, they have to live in at this moment, but also making sure they're bringing yeah. that divine part of themselves to the table as well. Is that is that how you would look at yourself as being that bridge? And, and if so, how does that, how do you see that role within yourself? Mm, that's a beautiful question. Um, the image <clears throat> that I use often and that comes to me as you're saying that. Do, do you, did you ever read or you know the book The Mists of Avalon? No, not for me. You know it's, it's, a, it's a novel, but yeah. it's this beautiful story of basically King Arthur's kingdom, so during the time of King Arthur. And Avalon was this sacred island, um, and the way that and where the priestesses would go and be trained and learn <clears throat> the sacred arts and then they would go back into the mainstream. They'd go back into Arthur's kingdom and bring these with this, you know, vibration, we could say this wisdom. <clears throat> and um, you kind of have to have the, the way it, in, the, in the story of it's a, um, you have to have the eyes to see for the Isle of Avalon to show itself. So you get, there's a boatman who carries you across the waters and there's a fog and, you know, the waters part and you see it. And um, it's the, the sort of how I feel I've actually lived my whole life. And what I feel is the, the work we're doing, which is uh, now we have the potential to do here, which is to be, to see other worlds, but to be in the world, you know, and, and but to have the veil. And for me, Bali was a place where the veil was very thin. And I've been there many, many times since. <clears throat> As it turns out, the the my the dark story we'll we'll get to. Um, my husband was had an Indonesian antique furniture business, and, and we went to Bali a lot and to Java. So it was, and every time I go, I'd get the next kind of download of what I need to do and where I need to go. So I think it is true that. I'm interested in being in the world, and I came, could say I, I came here to be awake and present and in the world right now, um, and to be able to see things that maybe everybody else cannot see, um, and that does feel like part of what my role is, yes. Oh, I love that. And to me, that's one of the greatest gifts <laughs> as a guide is is to help them see what they can't see like I, you mentioned skiing before i come from a sporting background and and the dependency on having that mentor or coach or guide or someone there or even just a teammate who can say oh did you look at things from this perspective and that's what you described beautifully there the bridge between what they feel within themselves and then the reality of the situation they have to go into i think yeah. that's uh yeah, really, really eloquent way of describing that. Thank you, Suzanne. Now, fast forward then to, like you said, the 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 dark wake up. So, can you tell us a little bit what about yeah. what folded there and and how that impacted you? 
So I'm following the path of, of uh, will you help to midwife the divine feminine on earth? Brings me to, the, to Seattle, to these programs as I described. And <clears throat> my first marriage ended and a very difficult uh, end actually. Um, I go into some of that in, in, the, in my second book, um, You Make Your Path by Walking. But and about six months later, I met my second husband, David. And really, that meeting was, I just in some ways, I feel like my whole life was, was working its way toward him. Yeah. Um, and there are various reasons that I would, would say that, but there was that sense of just such coming home or, or resonance, let's say. And so he, as I mentioned, was in, this, in a business of um, Indonesian antiques, and he had a workshop in Java, and <clears throat> that was his passion, and he had actually created this incredible property on the island that I lived on also at the time in the Pacific Northwest and had brought Indonesian antique houses over from Bali. So wow. taken them down, you know, one piece at a time, labeled them all like a Lego set, and then yeah. <clears throat> brought the carpenters over and put them all up again. And so our property, well, his property, and then it became my, was this magical, magical, you almost felt like you were walking into Bali. It had that, in fact, we had, uh, Balinese rice fields kind of going down behind one of the temple buildings. It was quite wow. extraordinary. Wow. Yeah. So this was another world. I, I lived in this other world there, and my work was really um, beautifully unfolding the work I was doing with women. We had two very different businesses. David did his own, and I did mine. And uh, And after 10 years, it was time to bring this work into the world. And share it with um with those beyond the few women that could get into our programs because we'd figured some things out and i felt we could accelerate the development for women all over the world but they weren't all going to come to seattle and do this program so um so my co-author dr susan cannon and i wrote this book the manuscript was complete um and we were getting ready to bring it out uh, to the world to find a publisher <clears throat> and also to run a program that we had taken a year off of running our programs, our both in-house and corporations, and then programs that women came to to write the book. So there we are. And then I will just say, David, um, in about three months prior to to this, um, he had gotten tinnitus. If you're familiar with that, um, ringing in the ear. Yeah, actually, really interestingly, I did a few uh, podcast episodes on that uh, just recently. So, yeah, continue, please. Oh, really? Okay. Well, you may well know more than I do then about it. Um, but David got this tinnitus, and it was debilitating. Um, when you were the people you had on your podcast, were they people suffering with this, or um, it's been? A bit of a journey with my experience with it, uh, oh. helping other people with it, and <laughs> learning some of the things like that have gone on. It's part of the awakening process. There are physical elements like the Earth's 
electromagnetic field when when the energy flares up then it can go off more but then what i've learned more recently is it's very much linked to a sense of rejection and so the body talks to us and uh more recently a, a woman that had been through three years i was working with her to help her alleviate some of the symptoms three years of really intense like she she sent me one of those um the video that shows the different sound um yeah oh my god intensity yeah, yeah. and so this is like ten thousand um hertz or whatever and that's what she's experiencing constantly uh-huh. and then when i when i the next day this is like just recently like talking about just being ahead of your clients just recently like maybe three four weeks ago and then the next morning it came to me it's like oh i ran it through the filter of everyone i knew and it's like yeah, yeah they they experienced some kind of rejection from someone and so i sent that to her and i said would that add up for you? And she said, well, yeah, she'd had, she'd been estranged from both of her teenage children's children because of stuff going on with the separation and all these different things. She goes, that, that actually sits perfectly with her and just acknowledging that really helps. So I don't know if that um, uh, works for you or, or resonates. Well, let, let me tell you a little bit more and then I'd love to hear what you think because yeah. Yeah. Um, for David, he he would spend his mornings, early mornings, and up until this moment, um, in these states of bliss in his meditation. He would just get into these great states, and it was sort of part of how he handled this very complex business world he had between here and Java and all these people and our property, and they were all tied together. And so then he couldn't he couldn't get into those states because it was so so crazy like this perhaps for this woman it was just like having this like assault and he was very very sensitive being and so then and of course then he couldn't sleep so then that that is also an exacerbator so i'm getting goosebumps so when you were describing that i was getting like a twitch under my uh right eye which would be mirrored back from him left left eye which Mm -hmm. is the Mm -hmm. feminine and you know, Twitch is like message from from spirits trying to get your attention. So, so my best guess would be, like you described, he was no longer able to connect to with that that feminine energy and see what he used to see because of everything going Absolutely. on. So, so the sense of rejection was from almost like that that whether self or spirit of like why why won't you why won't right? You well, I think I think you're right, and so then the other piece of it that was very much a part of this is that his whole business was about to implode financially, Mm. which it did. And it all came crashing down on me. So there was an enormous amount of shame also. Um, And that, you know, you could say that was the fear of rejection, I think was coming because the Mm. reality of who he projected in the world and what was about to happen were so, different yeah that that makes total sense and and my my guess would be that he may have experienced it at a minor level like sort of leading up to that but you you kind of like it comes and goes and you don't make too much of a we don't you don't draw a great deal of awareness to it but then when it gets intense then you you really notice it um yeah fascinating fascinating and so uh, yeah, so I think he, uh, uh, this is a combination of these factors. The tinnitus so at the physical level, 
and you know, I felt we would work this through because there is no cure yet, as you know, obviously. But mm. there are ways of working with it so that you yeah. can learn to live with it. And then, as you suggest, there may be weight patterns that you can clear yeah. that are causal. But um, but anyway, that was going on, and then uh, he, I, I believe, I know actually that he he. I think lost hope in himself and and the fact that he could handle what was about to happen with his business. And so on the on January third, uh, twenty thirteen, he took his life. And I I came home from working in the city that day to find him uh, dead. And you know to even try to convey the we, the 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 try to convey the the opposing energies here one of which is i'm getting ready to come out with my book you know mm-hmm. to go to the publisher 5 days later we're going to launch a program his mm-hmm. niece so his sister's daughter and his best friend's son from indonesia who had helped him set up his business were getting married 2 days later all the Indonesian family were here in Seattle. Um, you know, everything was in a certain sense celebratory and the energy was, this was obviously not always the case for someone uh, who chooses to, who, who suicides. You know, you could be, they could have been in a depression, a dark place for months. And this was, David was struggling with the tinnitus, but he had obviously kept these parts very separate. And the part that was not afraid of leaving couldn't couldn't stay, basically. And then the part who was very charming and here. Hmm. Um, do you mind if I just ask a couple of questions around yeah. that? Uh, so, so my left middle finger has been itchy, <clears throat> like really itchy, and it's like. Um, like I said, that's that's usually something from spirit. Now I just tried to quickly look up middle finger. Um, now it says here this is the first one that's come up, and it's about um, the throat, throat chakra, and then the next thing is around um, boosting your skills um, around taking responsibility. So, is that? to do with you yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah i mean if i had to say there are two things that i've had to do you know it would be basically dave well or we could say david couldn't do he couldn't take responsibility for what he had created and right. he left and i did take responsibility um and and it required me to be i mean i i would say the throat chakra in terms of the way I hold the throat chakra in terms of not just speaking but manifesting mm. the things that I actually needed to do um, as the title of the second book is you make your path by walking like how one thing that I was very clear about and this was from I, I did not know when I found him that he'd taken his life I actually thought he'd had a brain tumor from the that was the ringing in the head like that's just what I yeah yeah, and yeah. when I found out that he had taken his his own life a couple of hours after that, um, 
from a friend who was there and the police were there and it was a whole uh, you know scene uh this this thing this voice just rose up in me and i i remember it like now uh, i was standing in front of our fireplace and somebody came and said you know you should sit down there's something i want to tell you and i said no i'm not sitting down i'll just stay standing what is it you need to say and then they told me and this just a voice came in and said i will not be allow what i'm here to do this the midwifing of the divine feminine on earth i will not be taken down by this i will do what it is i'm here to do it was almost like i sent this vibrational uh belay line out into my future self you know to say this this you are still on belay you are obviously going to go to a deeper and darker place than you've ever been before yeah. but you know something about walking in the dark and actually that is the lesson and that is where you will go uh, you know that was an important thing for me yeah i mean to my mind we can't teach others to walk in the light until we've been through our own dark right and it doesn't mean we wish darkness on ourselves generally everyone's been through the dark it's just they haven't necessarily associated with it the first time so the darkness will come and find you in another way like how how dark like even though you had that moment almost involuntary commitment to yourself like how dark did it get in those coming hours and days and weeks yeah oh it, it was well um the work I do, just to say, is uh, with the dark, you know, the yin and yang symbol. Yeah. And the dark is the yin and the yang is the white. And the work I'd been doing for years had to do with inviting women to really make contact with the, the their own embodied nature, with the unconscious, you could say, with all that is not known. And... So that was already something I knew. And one of the myths that I worked with, a uh, Greek myth, a Persephone Demeter myth. And the myth, um, for those that aren't familiar with that, is basically that, uh, and so it's a myth that I always, it's in my first book. And we do a kind of ritual process here when, at the beginning of every program I do where women sort of ritually turn toward the dark um and uh the, the myth of, can i just give you the simple version of the myth yeah of course okay so persephone is a maiden and she's picking flowers with her mother demeter and um hades who was god of the underworld saw her fell in love with her and with along with zeus decided he would have her as his bride so one day he She's picking flowers and he comes up in his chariot with the thundering horses and grabs her and takes her down into the underworld. And she refuses to eat anything, refuses to talk to him, refuses everything of the underworld experience. And is there for some time until eventually Zeus relents and decides she should return to her mother Demeter. It's a longer story, but let me just give that as the basic. So just before she's about to leave, Hades offers her some pomegranate seeds. Well, since you're leaving, why don't you eat these pomegranate seeds? You know, and she thinks, okay, I'm getting out of hell. 
I think I can eat something now. And she has a few seeds. And when she returns to the upper world, to where Demeter is, her mother, uh, she discovers that if she's eaten anything in the underworld, she would then have to spend six months of the year in the underworld and six months of the year in the upper world. So ultimately, though, and this is the point, she becomes queen of the underworld. She falls in love with Hades. She learns to embrace the dark. And she becomes queen of the upper world. And this is really that bridging I was talking about, you know, could say the mysterial that same way. So the day after David died, one of my good friends who lived on the same island, Michael Mead, and he's written a lot of books on, um, he's a kind of ritual elder, and you'd probably like his work if you don't know it already. And um, I asked him to come over and just help me make sense of this. And he knew the myth. He's also, he's a mythologist. And we sat together and he just looked me right in the eye and said, well, um, you are going to be, and you have been called actually, you've been called to go somewhere darker uh, than you've ever gone before. And remember that you're Queen Persephone, that you do know how to be in the dark. And some of us will be with you in the upper world. On, you know, we'll be holding space in the upper world, but it's yours actually now to go down. And I remember in that moment, um, and I write about this in the book, that feeling of something almost like something let go inside me to really to go down. Um, and in the going down, you know, there was also the possibility that I might eventually come up. Yeah. So the darkness was just as it began to be apparent what it what it all, all you know letting it all in one mm-hmm. piece at a time. Yeah. Um, and when you when you shared that part about the darkness, and then your your friend there um, just got this wave of nausea, and it's like mm-hmm. um, that that's what it's like, right? For for people when they when they go first go into that darkness, mm-hmm. it's it's like. Uh, a that that sinking feeling in the gut, that the the sick feeling that oh, it is this kind of nauseating feeling. It's also, it's also, yeah. There's the, the, uh, for me, there was also the scrambling. There's like my ego trying to le- like to take flight. You you got to go like this part of me that felt like I just had to go. I just got to go. I got to go. I got to go. And then I would be like, oh, my God, there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere I can go. I can't go. You know, so the 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 feeling of and I knew enough from the work I do that I wanted to get to a place where I could just be with what is like really be with this. Denial is a really helpful stage in trauma. And I and it's it's essential because you you the prefrontal lobe goes off duty a little bit while your nervous system's overwhelmed. But ultimately, the sooner you're able to not resist what is, which is what Persephone did initially when she went down, you know, to not resist it, the better it is for you. There's already so much suffering, you know, and then the, the Buddhists call it the the suffering of the suffering when you resist your suffering. Or you're trying to change what it is, you know, it's like, get me away, get me somewhere, or you go numb, or you, no, this is actually happening. And this is, 
and this is my life. Like, this is this is my life right now. It's not like I'm, I don't know where I'm going to go. And so right. can I be here now with this? Now, this day does not come back. This moment does not come back. That, that word you used, um, uh, the, well, I think you used, but this is where my mind went, the, the resistance to the suffering. Mm-hmm. It's to me, that's what causes most people their problems. It, if we can just sit with it, we can find a way to let it pass, but we just, we want to resist. And, and whether it's like finding any joy on the other side of, of that sort of depth of loss, whether it's, uh, allowing ourselves to feel the depth of the pain because it's not just the moment from from that grief, but it's everything that comes to surface at the same time. Oh, but, really, but it really is that art of being able to be in that state of just allowing it to be, right? Absolutely. And being able to, this is in, in the system I work with um, that I teach is what I call the mother archetype. That first, the, the yin field is how I think about it, the, the deep feminine, but the static feminine. There's also a dynamic feminine that mm. I talk about, but this, the yin field where you can just let yourself um, drop in to here, to, to this moment. And the thing about the emotional body, and I mean, I knew something about this, obviously. I taught about this. I lived it to some degree, but I mean, I don't think, but no, I'd never experienced anything to this level the thing is the waves move they are designed to move um if we will let them move and the the fear is and it's it's an understandable fear and i had it myself was that it's going to be too big if 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 i you know so I I learned how to, to I could say it like this I learned how to surf like big wave surfing <laughs> in that metaphor and then, you yeah. know funnily I have always loved big wave surfing I do not surf um, mm. I I do big mogul skiing which is my equivalent but yeah. um, I've always loved watching it it's sort of like one of the things I do I've I've done for years to just watch big wave surfing I, something about when people are with that kind of force of nature and can be with it. And that image for me was so right on for, for what was happening when I went down. Yeah. I I don't know if you've done much dream interpretation, but uh, big waves is, is big emotions and and the you know everything that comes crashing down. So I love how like you're drawn to that because it's the exact space you work in. I, I I found this really fascinating, and this is just the thought that came to me when you when you were talking. It's like the being allow being able to get into that place of allowing is the feminine, but most men are trying to stay in the masculine. And post going through world wars, a lot of women are too much in that masculine too. Right. Is that the reason why grief is so hard for the Western world? Because when we've lost that art of the feminine? Uh, absolutely. I would say absolutely. For men and women, um, we've, we've well, that's, you know, that's the T.S. Eliot poem. I don't know the whole poem, but yeah. it's when the, when the darkness, does it go? The darkness becomes the light and the, the, 
when the darkness becomes the dancing or something like that. Um, the darkness is so terrifying to the the pure hyper-masculine that it, it, there's a sense that I'll be annihilated if I go toward this rather than actually there will be, there is not just you find the light in the darkness because that still makes it about the light is that you find the pearl in the darkness. You find the, 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 the beauty in the darkness. You find uh, your embodied experience in the darkness, but the, Hypermasculine's also been very mental. And I would say, and we I read about this in the first book, from a developmental perspective, just in terms of culture, we've been in five thousand years of this more you know masculine model of wholeness. And that wasn't wrong. We were cultivating a lot of the capacity of the brain and the yeah. higher functioning mind, but now it is time not to go to the feminine. We're not going back to the goddess. But to bring now the feminine together with the masculine, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, once we jump off, I'll have to show you a, an image that came to me in meditation. We're, we're exactly like you're talking about callings, which was exactly along those lines. Um, you um, you were talking there about the the um, the masculine having that uh, fear of what they'll lose if they go into that space and it is amazing how people going through that grief i think one of the things that blocks is it's i'm almost dishonoring the person or i'm dishonoring the situation or like it's not okay to be happy again if you suddenly find that pearl i don't know if i want, I don't know if I want to go down there i'm not ready to find the pearl and i think well, I'd love your thoughts on how you help people to to be ready to be able to to realize that within that darkness they can actually find their pearl. Yeah. Well, the first thing would be to just be in the darkness because that's the surrender, so key, yeah. and and that is, um, yeah, the surrender is surrender is is everything there where the, in one way, you know, I remember Michael also was saying said to me. You know, a way that you know you're really in a descent, the way that we might think about real descent, the way that even indigenous cultures still today have these rites of passage um, that are designed to take people into the dark, is that you don't know if you'll come back. And also there is a sacrifice required. Something must be let go of. And I know for myself there was although I'd been in other dark times before, other hard things that happened in my life, I don't think I ever felt like this, where I felt like, you know, the, the ego desperately trying to hold on wasn't sure. You know, the heroic me mm. that could get through anything was shattered. Um, and that was actually for me, and I'd say for others, that was a good thing. Because the, the breaking open, being willing to be broken open, was the way to break into the world or the world to break into me. Um, and so, you know, I think you don't need to do that on your own. I'm not yeah. even sure we should do it on our own. Yeah. Um, so when, you know, one of the hardest things for me and was that I had to accept the role that I was in, which I didn't want to accept because I was usually the one helping people through difficult yeah. things. And yeah. 
being the transformational teacher and doing blah, blah. Now here I was at the center. My role was actually to be the one broken open. But if I was able to go to be there, which was where I was designed to be, um, something could happen. And what did happen was this incredible love field came in around me of my good friends and my family. And it was profound for everyone. I think everyone would say that, that um, there was something we found together in the darkness. And I'm sure I couldn't have found it on my own. Yeah. And, and it draws me back to something that I was going to mention earlier. It's like you, the responsibility wasn't just in the responsibility you were thrust in, but it was like, you know, you would just want to go somewhere else, but you weren't sure where to. Part of it is there's a sense of responsibility to staying here and and playing your role through all of that, right? Um, but also what I love there is, you being responsible enough for yourself to know that, well, no, it's actually okay. It's okay for me to receive support and help through this. Yeah. And even when when I, when I, and I write about this in the book, um, uh, I factored myself in, this was a big piece of my own growth was I think I had overstepped some of my own humanity in my desire to be of service in the world and, you know, all of that. I can relate um, to that. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. we all, a lot of us have that shadow. Yeah. Um, and this was because I really lost everything. I didn't just lose my husband and the path ahead, but his the financial devastation was complete. We had a multi-million dollar property that I had to sell and was able to sell fortunately very quickly. But his debt did not even equal that property. So literally all of my personal resources were gone. Oh, wow. I lost my community. I left the island. I you know, closed my business down. I mean, you may be familiar with the Tibetan sand paintings when, where the monks have these little um, sort of tubes and they blow sand onto the, they create mandalas out of sand. Have you ever seen these? No. Oh, they're amazing. They're, they're, yeah. You should find a, an audio or a video of this. Um, it's a whole meditation that they do uh, for days where these, the monks take turns and they all create this amazingly intricate and gorgeous mandala. And you could choose to be, and I've been present for some of them where I've just, you sit in meditation while the monks are doing this. Well, at the very end, when it's all done, they just, they, they take a stick and they just wipe this whole thing off. <laughs> and that's what it felt like. It felt like life just, uh, like everything that was so beautiful. I had the most beautiful life, all I can say. Mm. And it was just gone within six months. So it wasn't like, it was just a little bit of my life gone. It was like everything in my life was gone. And how I would go through this I knew right at the beginning um, was not a guarantee that I would where I would get to in the end, but I wasn't going to not have myself in it. So for example, the decision to take on the role of um, the will, the executor, as I was named. Um, And one of my financial counselors said, you know, maybe you should just walk away because we had separate businesses. You know, I wasn't tied into the estate that way. Hmm. 
you should just pack up and go. And because otherwise you are, it is a sinking ship and you could go down with it. And I spent a month just using all my ways of knowing to really feel into what could happen. I mean, and ultimately, uh, including taking myself into account for the first time, really, I made the decision to go ahead and be the executor and try to sell the property. And I felt like it was my path to walk yep. and that if I could do it, there would be uh, some resonance that would start to come in the field around David and some people could get money back that creditors that he borrowed from. Um, but I did that in a more complete way than I'd ever done anything before with myself in the middle of it as well. Yeah. Ultimate responsibility. That's magic. Ultimate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, um, this, this sort of sense of anxiety that came up when you mentioned, um, finding, oh, finding out that your, um, husband had taken his life it also came up when you just mentioned the sand patterns and i imagine both of them is because of what you described is that everything just being swept away so so what what was that like from from an emotional perspective when when everything's taken like how did that feel and how did you get through it yeah yeah <laughs> um well, let's see. I guess the way, the best way I could describe it beyond what I've said already would be to say it was profoundly humbling that uh, these, you know, in the way that that light wake up dissolved my ego and my identity in that moment, you know, from this management consultant who's doing all this work and blah, blah, blah. I, this event, uh, totally dissolved my I had an identity I didn't even know I was you know a lot of our identity rightly sort of goes in the background we don't even know what we how we see ourselves yeah um, but but every way I identified myself was was gone but this one and one of the uh, the images I I had and it was something that it was an image here for Americans will relate to more because it was a big hurricane that we had on the East Coast and everything was devastated in the New Jersey area. But this one, there's a photo that went viral, that which was mm -hmm. this, the Virgin Mary, this one a graveyard where all the, everything was just flattened, but this, the, the Virgin Mary is standing there, you know, she survived out of, out of everything else getting knocked over. And often I felt like that, like something held inside me um, that I felt kind of um, like being tied to a mast in a, in a ship that's c c going crazy in the in a, in a frothing ocean. Like yep. some part of me that wasn't about the identities that remained, and um, I I really landed firmly or let's say rested back into uh, a me or and a me in relationship to a we or, or interbeing or the larger something um, that I actually had enormous faith in. Now, whether that meant I could have been homeless, you know, 
under a bridge. Yeah, maybe that was one of the options there. I, I had no guarantee that way. But I did I didn't have that center. Yeah. yeah. At the same time I had all the waves to go through. I want to say these were co-arising. I had no anger, I yeah. enormous grief, terror, you know, moments of joy and with that would happen. I had all, it was like a, a whole panoply of emotion at the same time. Yeah, it's a great description because that, that is what it's like, isn't it? No matter, no matter your circumstances, it's just a, it's a whirlwind of all these different combinations. It, that's probably why it's so hard to make sense of at times because it's just like you, you, you try and grab onto something and it's just ever-changing. Ever-changing. So therefore, you know, you get, and I did get, um, more connected to what what wasn't moving while everything is moving like yeah. the groundless ground or something and there's a there's a wonderful um we used to teach and when we did our all our uh, during the research phase we did in treat in person retreats a lot and um there's a practice in aikido called rondori i don't know if you're familiar with that no but basically, it's when the, the Aikido master uh, stands in the center of the circle and different people come in toward him or her. And the job of the, the, the Aikido master is to take however that whatever that person, however they move toward them and <clears throat> move them. You know, so you basically so if you do it well, you aren't meeting each person or circumstance in the same way. You're really, you are staying, you're present, but then you get thrown off, but you know how to come back fast. And then you get thrown off and you know how to come back fast. Yeah. And um, that's what it felt like, a constant rondori, because there were so many factors. And the more that I could be, I want to say, soft knees and present, the more capable I was of meeting whatever that, next hard thing was or that that next moment was that's a great description and that's a good way to approach any of the challenges big and small isn't it to to have more of that flexibility i've been drawn to the picture behind you inside the mm. like a, an, an archway it's almost like angel wing like who's the picture yeah, well, that that is uh, first of all the, um, the what you're seeing it framed behind is an antique Indonesian um, the marriage bed where they would actually go behind the bed, sort of like the, the sacred. You put yeah. the image of your sacred gods or whatever. Well, this is a little photo of a little boy that met um, someone, uh, a person who took the photo early one morning, super early in the morning, uh, when they were hiking in Nepal. And um, nobody was around, and they were looking around for where to go, and that little little being, and it's such a beautiful image, um, showed up. And the interesting thing is, I mean, it was such a beautiful photo, and the, and this, the woman who took it has a, a gallery here in Seattle, and then sold it to to um to many people and generated funds from it and felt that that money should go back to that person so about five years after the photo 
or maybe more, maybe, yeah, five or six years, she went back to Nepal, went back to the village, took this photo, and went around to everybody to say, do you know who this was? And ultimately found him and um, and then funded him to go to school. Wow. Um, and obviously his life changed and his family's life changed. And um, it's a beautiful story. But I love it because it's a kind of, there were many layers of reasons I love it. But what was what struck you when you saw it? Well, <laughs> this might even be a bit out there for my regular uh, listeners. But when you were talking, I'm like, he's almost like conscious of like um, someone there. <laughs> Like with someone with long hair, I don't know if it's a male long hair, and it's like um, hair that's kind of like, like you might imagine a sort of biblical sort of person. Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, oh, that same shape is mirrored by the framing of the around the picture. I'm like, is it is it a like a past ancestor of yours? Like, did you was there a? No, I'm not sure. Um, I could throw a few guesses in there, but but I got the sense that it was like I don't know. Did your did your husband or your dad or a grandparent may all have long hair? No, no, mm. I don't have a direct. So like, yeah, I'm I'm not sure what all that was. It's like yeah. not really something I've experienced before, <laughs> but that's what I was kind of kind of seeing, and it's like um, yeah. I don't know, but it was well, like that's great. I'll, uh, well, you know, the other day someone was doing a podcast <clears throat> with me, and they said, because you said angel wings, they yeah. said, do you know that there's this big white being that is behind you? Well, the uh, when I had that experience in Bali, the the essence that I feel I connected with there is is an essence that I think is in the energy of Kuan Yin who is the goddess of compassion, this big white being. And uh, so I said, well, I, there is someone I do, <laughs> I think is pretty close to me. Um, so I don't know if that is what you're tuning into. Well, yeah, I got confirmation from my body that that, that would be, <clears throat> be it. But also um, there's probably a bit more to to it than that. Um, so if that's something that you're uh, needing to share or something <laughs> that uh, maybe for – for after, but uh, more significance and just not sure. I'm very open to hearing any threads that you think would be um, useful for. Well, I'm not. I'm not getting a clear. I'm not getting a clear um, read on it, except that there might be an element of frustration from you whether that's something because you don't know or whether uh yeah i do i don't feel frustration at all in fact what i would say is why i'm curious in what you're doing is i think that one of the ways that one of the things that was most helpful for me going through the dark dark times was that i really was listening at all of these layers and levels to Mm -hmm to beings, to people on different in different dimensions and paying attention and, and extraordinary things happened. I mean, synchronous things happened. Um, and I was open to them. I was, I was 
watching and tuning in to be informed what was my next step because there were so many critical decisions I had to make that would have and did have very big um, consequences. Hmm. Um, when when I get different reads in my body, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a energy <laughs> you can identify hmm. with. It's more, well, it might just be something sitting right. there. So it's an unconscious frustration perhaps. Um, but anyway, we might move on from that. Maybe the answer will come as we go. Uh, so the first book you said came out like at this same time. So well, did no, you no, pause that whole, did you have to pause that whole situation? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. The, yeah. um, it hadn't, we hadn't found a publisher yet. We had just finished it and we were getting ready to do that. So the program oh. that was supposed to, to happen five days after David died, we postponed for five months and then did that. And then it took me about another year and a bit to get back, um, to the book at the first book and follow through in the publishing and get that out in the world that came out in 2016 and uh, and did very well it, it got three awards and has been really i think a, a, an impactful book in the world in the space that i'm working in uh, but i didn't really that was not my journey and it was i, I didn't even mention it except in the the acknowledgments at the end of the book <clears throat> so this new book coming out in June, You Make Your Path by Walking, A Transformational Field Guide Through Trauma and Loss, that was not a plan. I was just walking through. <laughs> I was just making my path by walking, you know. Yeah. Um, and I was very, very deliberate about not doing it as for anybody other than myself initially. I mean, for myself as a transmission for, you know, I, I, yeah, I could impact others, but I wasn't going to do the spiritual bypass of writing about things that I hadn't lived yet. And it wasn't until another, after the first book came out, maybe another three years or so, that I was ready to write for myself. I, I wanted to write myself back together and take myself back over the ground of what had happened. And I would go away for a week at a time and and do that. And it was very hard, actually. And <clears throat> but very like the me of today or of then uh, taking the me of that had gone through the horror, uh, you know, when he died in that first year by the hand. And, and, and those two coming together was very, very healing for me. Um, and after I'd written uh, that, I, I've sh written quite a lot. It maybe it took me a couple of years because I'd go away every now and again. Then I um, showed it to my, my uh, editor of the first book. And she was the one that said, okay, I think you need to make this into a book for others. You can bring this out. So that, was, that, that just happened. And then it all happened very fast. It was like, okay, all right then. Here we go. Um, I love that, especially what you said about the um, writing. There's no point writing or sharing messages around things that you haven't been through because it's it's not in alignment. It's like you can talk about it because you've spoken to people, but it's not where you're going to have the greatest impact. 
But then, as you said, you go through this process of sharing your stories so therapeutic in itself of externalizing all of the different thoughts and feelings and uh, and all the moments and of course that's what's going to have the biggest impact so this book hasn't gone out but I imagine you're going to get some fantastic feedback given it is coming purely from your story but after that first book like were you was there some some feedback that you got that that really surprised you or, or blew you away that you received from people? Oh, yes. I think um, it was the carrier wave for me that I kind of rode back into my work in, in a way. Yeah. Um, I, people were so grateful. It's like we met, we show, show women a map you know, and, and then you can see where you are and that was enormously comforting for women. And also the practices were like, okay, and get going because this is the, uh, you know, the, the dynamic of this evolutionary time, you know, the moment we're in right now is forcing us to grow if we can stop resisting it and actually let the emergence occur. And I think the book was, has been, still is actually, interestingly, it's my publisher keeps saying it's like your book's got a reverse curve because it, you know books come out and they've got something. My book has come out and did okay, but then it just keeps going. And um, during COVID, it was it was uh, really helpful to a lot of women. And I think this second book, women in particular, will want to go back and get the first book because um, what I what I do in the second book, and this just came about when I stepped back after I saw my writing. And I was trying to see how did I, how did I, did it connect to the first book to this archetypal pathway I mentioned? But what I actually saw was that um, there were, there were eight, what I call meta capacities that we had started to see in women. They're in the last chapter of the first book. Like we'd just seen them like multidimensional knowing, embracing paradox, generative mutuality. We'd named these ways of being that were like second order, you'd say. And, but I, we weren't fully living it yet. It was like we just were seeing, you know, like right on the edge. And that's what I did. That is what I lived. Um, so this book is, then, I, then there's a whole second section is where I tell my stories, but I connect them to those meta capacities. And um, so you can see how it's possible through the most difficult circumstances that could be thrown at you that, uh, you're being called to that darker night for the transformative force, if you will let it have its way with you. And that's hard as hell because none of us want to be in that kind of pain. But when you are called, then it is, okay, what if this is, is the cauldron, you know, for the alchemy, for something I can't even imagine yet. Like that's, level of emergence right oh, i love that for something you can't even imagine yet i think that's the, the the bit that if anyone's going to take anything away like when you're going through whatever you're going through and you're looking to to grow and change is you have to remember you you've got no idea what's coming and you don't know what you're capable of until you step forward as you say make your own path by walking because what you're capable of today is you couldn't have imagined what you've created way back when no because the self today 
you know, the self, myself at the beginning, that, that identity was not an identity that would be able to forgive, was not an identity that could be at home in that kind of darkness and descent. I had to grow that identity over time. And that identity later came online. And then, then you know, that was a different experience. Yep, well said. Now, of all of these different amazing creations and moments and teaching and leading that you've done, what, what, are, you most, what are you most proud of, Suzanne? That's that's a great it's a great question for me because I I don't um, often think of myself as being proud per se, but I really love that I I, sh I should think about that like that. In other words, yeah, and I am proud of um, the way I did walk through this, like that I've. I had that initial, I will not be taken down and that I would hold, I would walk in the way of the mysterious woman basically. And I, I really have done that. I am doing that now. This is the next phase of bringing this book out and talking about it, you know, yeah. is, is the next phase of my own healing. And I, I'd say, yeah, I've, whatever that soul contract was, and I don't, believe that uh, David incarnated with the plan to suicide. I think it's one of the options of the probability path. That was one. That's the one that he took. And therefore, I was then put on a path with him. But having now that I was on that path, um, that this was a walk that my, my soul um, accepted. And an invitation, I would say, that I lived into, and I'm, I'm really, I'm proud of that. Yeah. Amazing, love it. Um, where can uh, people find, firstly, the the book that's already published, The Way of the Mysterious Woman, and then can you let us know where, when, when the second book, um, You Make Your Own Path by Walking, will be released, and how people can find that as well. Yeah. Uh, Amazon is the best place. Well, actually, what I would say is go to your local bookstore if you've got one, because that's what I always would like to see us do. Yeah. Um, if you're lucky enough to be somewhere, you have a bookstore, still order it through them. But certainly Amazon and everywhere else, Barnes & Noble and whatever you have in Australia. I know a lot of people in Australia have the first book. And the second book, You Make Your Path by Walking, is out on June 13th, and that you can pre-order now on in all of those places so um yes i invite you to do that and you could find me at mysterialwoman.com and that's that wonderful word m-y-s-t-e-r-i-a-l woman.com love it thank you we'll make sure we get all those links in the show notes so people can find you nice and easily as well right. suzanne thank you so much for yeah. coming and sharing your story and uh, being open to whatever will come from it and uh, it, yeah. it made for a really beautiful chat and, and thank you for sharing your magic and mysterious ways. Thank you, Ian, for sharing yours. It's been a really beautiful meandering and meaningful conversation. Thank you.
You're welcome. Thank you.
I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Grief Code Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please share it with a friend or family member that you know would benefit from hearing it too. If you are truly ready to heal your unresolved or unknown grief, let's chat. Email me at info at ianhawkinscoaching.com. You can also stay connected with me by joining the Grief Code community at ianhawkinscoaching.com forward slash the grief code. And remember, so that I can help even more people to heal, please subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform.